Hi, this is Aaron Azrod, and welcome to the 83rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. Imagine you are at work and vying for a promotion, and the only way that you can get ahead is to fraternize and learn from a group of people you really don't care that much for. Yes, they are somewhat good at their job, and you might learn a thing or two from them, but something about them doesn't quite add up. Maybe it's their smugness, crudeness in jokes, or some other deeply held conviction that they all hold. What is one to do? Does one refuse to work with these people at the expense of getting ahead? Does the sovereignty of one's feeling towards others or sanctity of belief merit a good reason to pull back? Or does one have a pragmatic obligation to make friends with strange bedfellows, as it is often said in the realm of politics? In life, we have this never ending tug of war of on one, trying to get ahead and not feel like a failure, and two, being a person who sticks to being their authentic self. Life can make us join organizations, take classes, get drinks with people, all in the holy name of survival. These alliances can at times feel contrived, but it remains next to impossible to envision society without these reluctant networks at play. Joining me to help bring some inner peace into my life, I am once again joined with Claire. Claire, I hope you enjoy working with me, or is this sheer pragmatism at play? Absolutely not, Aaron. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's always a pleasure to kind of stumble through these ideas with you. I think that this is, this is a big one, um, and it's one that comes up at, at very often in my work. And I think, you know, what you start to realize when you're trying to accomplish goals with someone is that so little of the work is often about the work itself. Um, and you know, I think that that changes based on someone's temperament and just how they potentially see the world. But at least for me, what I often spend the most time thinking and grappling with at work is other people and the politics and the dynamics and, and coming out of, when you come out of a meeting frustrated, it's not often because of the numbers or the design, it's because of, you know, some, some frustration in that conversation. And that, that is just truly inevitable. These things are, are going to, you know, we will, we should need to interact with people with different temperaments and different personalities um, all the time. So I think often just doing that first piece of just separating that out a little bit. Dalio talks about separating problems and people. And so that you do kind of, you can separate, okay, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here to do a task. We have a goal to accomplish. That's one thing the work needs to get done well. But at the same time, part of my job is also just to make significant relationships with the people I work with to make my boss happy. You know, like all of these dynamics are often just as important and can, you know, how can we balance those sort of as we go through life? Absolutely. And this, what you just said actually reminds me of something I mentioned on a previous podcast with someone else is it reminds me of my time when I was a kid, I used to work at a Wendy's and the difference between the day shift and the night shift people, the day shift people sucked. They were mean <laughs> to one another. Um, they were competitive. They're like, no, no, no. I want to work the cat, you know, this job. I want to work the drive-through, which was like the easier or whatever job. So they would all be very cutthroat, nasty people to one another. And then all of a sudden the night shift would come in and they were wonderful, laid back, cracking jokes. And it, it always reminded me that like, time always just flew on by with the night shift folk because mm -hmm. they, 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 the personalities 
were, were so much better and maybe the people in the day shift wanted to become manager or they had like higher ambitions in the world of fast food you know good luck to you trying to do that but anyways um they they were very nasty to one another and I think that regardless of what the job is, whether you're working at a Wendy's or whether you're working in corporate finance, the people you work with are really going to define your relationship to that job. Yeah. And I think in that in that example, one thing that could have been going on, and certainly there's just personalities and personality fit, but there's something I think possibly about a night shift too that is this sort of shared experience that's just a little bit more intense. And they talk about... You know, in-group and out-group out mentality, one way to really bring a group together is to give them either a shared goal or a shared enemy. And that like, boom, just really bonds people together and allows them to identify. And that's something that humans, we just are instinctually are going to do is, you know, as soon as you put us into a large population, we're going to figure out what that in-group is. Um, and so I think, you know, identifying, and this goes for work or just any conversation, how can we get to a shared goal? And often that, that shared goal is going to be really different based on your temperaments, right? That we just don't like the same things often. But I think in work, if you can come to the table understanding, okay, what is this person trying to get out of this meeting? If they could leave, what, what are they trying to accomplish? Great. What is A, B, C trying to accomplish? Where can we find the overlaps in that Venn diagram? And let's stay there. And I think the same goes for productive conversation, right? That, that often you come to a conversation and someone just wants to say the one thing that they always want to talk about, or they want to get to some aim. But when you can come to a true conversation like we're having, I hope, where we're just trying to get to a, a joint exploration yeah. toward a shared goal, like that's really where, where the good stuff is. I love what you, two things I love what you said, um, one about shared goal and the other about shared enemy. That's beautiful mm -hmm. because in the day shift, and this is something I, I'm just thinking about now, thank you for, for making me think this way, is I actually just thought it was just, oh, well, the shitty personality types work during the day and the awesome, cool people work at night. But now I'm actually scratching my chin a little bit and thinking to myself, okay, the goals were maybe warped between day shift people and night shift people because maybe day shift people wanted to throw each other under the bus so that they could become a manager or do whatever. So the goals are warped. Whereas when I think of night shift people, what was their enemy? Their enemy was trying to clean the store as quickly as possible so they could go home, right? So they actually had a shared goal and shared enemy. And that is, I don't want to be stuck here until 4 a.m. I want to just like clean this place, get out of here, move here. So the goal or the enemy for night shift people is time itself. Like they want to get home as quickly as possible. And theoretically, when the last customer comes, if you can just clean that store quickly and get the hell out, it doesn't matter what time it is. You can just get the hell out of there. So I think, I think, I think context matters. I, that's a really good point. And there's that shared, shared sacrifice going on too, a little bit is we're all in this together. We all rearrange our days and sleep at weird times. Um, and you know, you see that even with religious tradition, right? If we all fast together today, or we, we, we sacrifice something during this time period, it is unifying. Yes, absolutely. We all can kind of lament and make jokes about like how our stomach is growling so much. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, I, and, I, and, and that's and that's precisely what you know Jews in concentration camps did. They made they made starvation jokes. So they made very 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 dark. They they used a lot of dark humor to keep mm -hmm. each other going. And that's actually something 
that I, I actually don't see that in the workplace as much. And it's actually sad. It's actually sad that I don't see more dark humor because dark humor actually brings people, especially people that are at the same level, right? Like you don't want to be making fun of your boss in front of your boss. Okay. But I think there's nothing wrong with like all of the subordinates kind of being like, oh, he's making us do that again. You know, like there's nothing like as, as long as it's in a playful way, because as the boss, when you're the boss, I think you have to then accept that people are going to talk behind your back right and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna be envious of your leadership but you're such a you're the 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 leader has the benevolence to know that and just kind of knows yeah they're probably talking about behind my back but they love me anyway and they'll come through and do that and so forth i think that when you kind of have a little dark humor it keeps everyone going it keeps it keeps that ship running and, and running smoothly and dark humor is actually a way to express grievances without actually having a full revolt. I think once you actually suppress the dark humor, that's when you're in danger of a few a full mutiny on your ship. It would be great even Aaron just to talk about humor in general at some time and just kind of the psychological implications of it because I absolutely agree. I think that it's a it's a it's a very effective tool especially in intense situations to create some shared camaraderie. I, I'm, I'm, I am a big fan of self-deprecation too. I think that that <laughs> has, a, has a big impact on someone and just kind of leveling the playing field. Um, and it's, there's a stoic element too, right? That we get so wrapped up in these emergencies and problems. And at the end of the day, you know, the, every, we, we only have these moments. Um, and if we can laugh in them, I think it's an effective tool. And we see that in, in the leaders we elect, you know, we, we want to, we, we want to have leaders that are funny or at least are personable, um, or at least have, you know, some, some, you know, it's not all just about, about the data. Um, so yeah, maybe we, we talk about humor sometime. It's, it's powerful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but there is a correlation, the scientific studies that show that there's a correlation between leadership and self-deprecating humor because yeah, the, the, um, the leader is always able to kind of like the, the leader throws themselves under the bus in a way they're, they're mm-hmm. like, Hey guys, I screwed up here. I got the date wrong. And like, they say it in such a way where it's like, you can see they're not really whipping themselves. Like they're not, they're not a massive kissed but they have a way of just like owning up to their failures in a cordial way of like hey i totally failed you guys pizza on me on friday you know and that's one of the best like you know all of the principles i had were were god-awful human beings you know god-awful the only one that was decent and unfortunately she only lasted like you know like one year while I was working there, she was the type of person that was like, guys, I just needed to cheer you up bagels on me or something like that. And like that, that kind of like behavior is so important with the people that you work with that like showing, showing like just even the tiniest level of self-sacrifice really is like the ultimate, like we're not like, no one's going to turn into Jesus. Okay. No one's gonna be like, I will get laid off. Like, you know, you know, like, you know, like no, no one's going to just throw themselves, you know, like that into the fire. But I think even the most slightest and most minutia forms of self-sacrifice can really boost the morale of the people that you're working with. Like, Oh, Aaron, you know, that was nice of him. He, 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 he knew I had an important appointment on Tuesday and he agreed to switch shifts with me because he had nothing else going on. And I think what's what's powerful about it is that it's it's 
it's bounded in truth or it's, it's really based in truth. And I think you can often know when someone is sort of being overly self-deprecating for someone to feel bad for them. Um, but when, when you, and we've talked about this with leadership too, if you make a decision and you need to take accountability for it, and then you come truthfully to the table with what may or may not have been effective in it, that's that people respect that. They really, really like it. Um, and I think what's difficult with me with that truth telling element is there's a line there as well. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think especially when you're, you're working with difficult people and you, and you try to orient yourself to truth, sometimes those snippy comments just really come out. I was just, um, talking yesterday with someone about people that go down to South America to take ayahuasca trips and then come back with their life changed and they spend all this money to do it. And just kind of <laughs> how much I love to roll my eyes at those people and, and just sort of how sort of, to me, it's sort of a manipulated religious experience without sort of the implications of it. And you spend most of the time vomiting anyway. So I just don't know how pleasant that is. Um, but you know, when you have a conversation with, with someone who might have had that experience, it's tough for me to not just be like a little snip, snippy, right? But that's not a constructive conversation. Like I'm not here to judge you or your experience. And certainly if someone came to me and they were like, um, you know, I know I roll, I, you know, what did this experience and they were kind of self-deprecating about it. I might be more with it, but that's one that I have trouble with is living in truth, trying to be transparent, but not hurting someone's feelings. Like we've all had that. There's that famous line from Jane Austen, Emma, where Emma just says something, someone kind of snippy and Mr. Knightley is like badly done, Emma. And she just has that <laughs> sinking feeling that you have when you say something and and it, it hurts someone I, I like I, you're touching upon something that I alluded to in the intro and I think it's really important and and this is actually one of my greatest aversions to certain types of people is I am I am allergic Claire to inauthentic people I have an allergy towards it right I think I need to get my prescription filled soon but um, so in, in in the workplace I actually have that same exact ex experience that that you described and like I said you can go and have a trip to, to South America or wherever and I can tell if it was meaningful or if, or if it was you know not you know and the way that I usually sniff it out is like if something bad on happened on that trip and you're being honest with me, like, Hey man, I was down there. And then this happened that those are the stories I love, not because I want to know that you were suffering, but you're actually giving me the unrefined version of your travels. That's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for, Hey, I, this, this happened and it kind of sucked. However, this happened and it was really awesome. So I trust people who actually give me like the unedited version of their travels. Whereas the person was like, and then we climbed to the mountain and the natives were there. And I learned about that materialism is evil like that, that I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're fake as hell. And I'm probably, it's probably an image being conjured in your mind right now. I'm, I'm, I, I know these people. Yeah. 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 And, and I, I have an allergic reaction to them because they, they are fake and they, they try and put their best face forward at all times. And they, they have no, no, and it's not even a cool, tough man stoicism. It's more of a soft kind of like everything is okay. And I'm so spiritually elevated. And, and I have to tell you how spiritually elevated I am. And I can't work with them, but I am wondering, like, <laughs> right? Hence, hence my like really checkered and spotty work history here. But I, I'm wondering if there is a way, like, let's say these people 
are good at their jobs, or let's say they do have some value, should I just hold my nose and, and, you know, pretend to get along with them and extract value from them? Like if they, if they have a really good teaching strategy, if they have like you work in marketing, if they have a good marketing strategy or something about them that you like, is it possible to just hold your nose without compromising yourself? Or do you think that that's fundamentally impossible? Yeah, I think three things are coming to mind here. I think we can look at this sort of on a philosophical basis as well as a psychological basis. I think, you know, philosophically what is happening with with people sort of wrapped up in in that experience is it becomes almost a a spiritual experience or it, it it's to me so obviously an ideology without being called that that I think there's a, a phoniness to it. And, and we've been talking a lot about Nietzsche that sort of in the absence of traditional, you know, roles and mythology and religions and just kind of like, hey, here's what you believe for your entire life and no one's ever going to question it. We've had to fill that void with all sorts of different kind of senses of meaning. And that's, you know, what you eat. It might be where you travel. It certainly is who you associate yourself with. And so I think to me that there's an element of, you are so obviously preaching an ideology or, or that's, that's important to you without knowing you are. Um, and I think if, if we can hold that with some compassion, right? Because in the same way, someone might have a different religion where you are like, that is way off from what I believe in. You, it's true to them, right? And so kind of holding the space for your ideology, even, even though someone might not even see it as that, I think is, is really important. Let me Go just ahead. touch upon that. Yeah, that, that's, I like this idea that in a way you're, you're granting them compassion. And I guess in that way, you're almost elevating oneself. Like you just don't get it, my friend. Like it's kind of one of those like, like ways of, of being like, like, I'll, I'll give you an example of like, let's say you have an environmentalist. Hey man, you should recycle. I agree. You should recycle. We should take care of this environment thumbs up, right? But when that person's environmentalism becomes a proxy for religion, right? Like their environmentalism now is a, a, a religious tool that they're using or whatever, then like, instead of just being like angry about it and being like, oh my God, you poor deluded, whatever, you know, like instead of just like snapping at it, kind of have that compassion and just be like, hey, me and you, we're just drinking different colas right now. You're a Pepsi guy. I'm a Coca-Cola guy maybe that's kind of a healthy mindset. And that's maybe something that I, that I haven't been able to do. And I'm, you know what, they probably look at me and think he, oh man, he's the guy drinking Pepsi. And I'm like, no, you're the one drinking Pepsi. And we kind of go back and forth on this, but maybe you're right. Maybe just having compassion for other people's ideology, whether you agree or disagree with it is, is a step that I need to make to. And, and, you know, Peterson's rule nine around, you know, treating, listening to people as if they have something really to teach you is absolutely true. And it's it's a service that we really need to, to honor people is that even when they're telling you a story that you think you have heard 50 million times from every other person just like them, that's not true. There is, there is a unique element of that story. And, and we really need to, in the absence of this ideology that we refer to, we need to listen to each other. Um, and it's you know the greatest gift you can give someone to truly listen to the words that they're saying so that they can think. 
and so that they can process. And the possible, I mean, the chance of on your facial expression, not giving them some tinge when they say something that makes them think, I wonder why they close their eye a little at that point. I wonder why they made that expression with their face. That's, that's, that's training their brain. And the next time they say that story, they'll say it a little bit differently. And so we really can't underestimate the power of that communication. And then flip side of it is what are you, what are you learning from that? And I think if we are watching our emotions and even physically, I sometimes I'm like, wow, you made me like my stomach hurts talking to this. It's okay. Why? What, what it is about that thing you said that made me, um, react in this way. And in this way, you know, we can always learn from someone, even if we think, Hey, you know, I've totally chalked it up, chalked you up. And I understand you completely. I think you answered my question. Um, we, when you said like, we've listened to the story a thousand times, what I think I actually, uh, have the strongest distaste for is that they have a mass produced ideology. That's actually what I think it is that I'm actually hating is that they're regurgitating a mass produced ideology. And not only are they doing that, they actually think that their journey is unique. That's actually what I'm detesting more than anything else is that their, their South American trip is the most special and the most unique experience and that that usurps anyone else who has traveled to that country because they and they alone had the most mystical journey out of anyone else and i think that's that's kind of what really gets my stomach going like oh, come on you know you're not that you're not you're not that special and like you're if you only you could just step outside of yourself and watch the thousand other people having this they're very you know sharing the same exact story of specialness but perhaps listening to that can help us not make that same mistake or not live in that way or really understand, okay, why, why is this revolting to me? Okay, let me really listen to it and really think about those things so that I can avoid them in the future um, and not coming at it with judgment, but, um, but sort of internalizing it and internalizing our reactions as we go. Absolutely. Now you, all right. So that covers the philosophical point of view and yeah, the psychological. So I think on the psychological side, Jung is, is impactful here. Um, so, and whatever sort of personality assessment you want to use, we talked recently about big five or Myers-Briggs, but just understanding that people are radically different based on their temperaments, based on both their genetics, as well as, you know, their background and their sort of early experiences in developmental understanding. And that that's twofold. It's understanding ourselves. Um, and I'm definitely a big advocate of, and I know you're not, um, so we can get into this, but of, you know, taking personality tests, exploring yourself, kind of understanding what, what that might be. They are not an end all be all, but really knowing, Hey, am I more extroverted? Why am I, why do I react in the certain ways? I think it helps you interact with the world. And then to start to see the flip side of it, you can quickly see when you're up against a person and you are very high in openness and they are not, and you sort of have judgment about the world and, and that's not matching up to, to take, to, you know, depersonalize the relationship and really look at, okay, you're, you, you see the world through this lens. I see the world through that. How can we navigate that? It's really um, sort of freeing in a way because you don't, there's no values associated with all these different sort of functions. Um, and so Jung would really say, you know, understand our certain proclivities, understand our tendencies to, to value different things. And then, you know, give that a little bit of space. 
Yes, yes. And, you know, it's funny, I've reflected a little bit about our, our conversation about personality. And I, I think the best way I can classify myself now is I'm an introvert with selective bouts of extroversion. That's, I think, I think, I, cause like now that I'm thinking about this, like if I was a true extrovert, when, you know, South American salad dude or whatever is coming down and telling me his story, I'd be like, yeah, yeah, tell me more, tell me more, yeah. So I, I think you're right. And I think, I think maybe coming to terms with that, with the terms that this person is highly extroverted, I'm highly introverted. And, Maybe, maybe I have a disdain for them because my, my, my introversion is acting as, as an immune system and it's protecting me from like what I consider to be unhealthy extroverted people that are infiltrating my, you know, the, the shield, so to speak, you know, like, I think in the, in episode one, Star Wars is that shield that prevents like the missiles from like destroying the robots or whatever. And and that kind of what goes, I'm like, "Uh Oh, you know, like cliche South American story shield goes up. Um, But that's, that's actually just my introversion at, at work right there. I'm like, you know, I don't have tolerance for things that, that I find to be, you know, disingenuous and so forth. And I think, I think, you know, thanking Peterson and Young for that re- really puts that in perspective. Now, we know, we know the philosophy, we know the psychology of why we're repulsed to work with these people. Do we still do it anyway? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes we don't have a choice. Yeah. Um, and I think I would, it's so situational and context is important here, but well, okay, now I'm kind of going back and forth. That's okay. That's podcasting. It's, 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 <laughs> it's a dragon of its own kind, right? So I do think setting up a, a goal for how to deal with these people in a plan of attack and just trying to, uh, to you know, slay that dragon, that's its own battle. And it's, it's certainly often a worthy one to have. And I think in, in situations like work where your livelihood depends on it, um, that's, you know, a challenge that you can't avoid. That being said, you know, if, if, if it is avoidable, there is, there is a, a case to be made for letting go of those people. Sometimes, you know, life is short. We have limited, there's so much context, content overload. Um, you know, sometimes it's okay to let go of those people, especially if they kind of were in a past part of a past relationship in life. Um, but if you do have to do it, let's see some, some recommendations. I mean, first of all, Dip, having working with people of different union functions than you is extremely beneficial in that they can help you identify your blind spots. Mm. And if you can develop a converse, uh, kind of a joint exploration communication process with those people, that's going to be in, incredibly effective. Um, and they do, you know, you don't want to have a significant other that is exactly the same union functions on you as everything <laughs> because you don't yeah. grow. Um, and so there's, there's definitely an element to be had there. It's just, you know, you know, sometimes going to get frustrating and that's okay. I like what you said about blind spots. And I think that diversity of friendships can, you know, point out your blind spots. Cause if, if you're, and you know, if you're living in the silo, like Joe describes, well then everyone, everyone's your best friend. Everyone's saying you're wonderful. Yeah. Peterson this. Yeah. Yeah. Young, you know, we're all, we're all living in that silo and, I guess, and it feels great. It feels really warm and awesome. This is Hawaii to me, but you're right. Like I need to interact with those people that I may disdain at work because they might point something out about me that actually ends up being true. That I, And that's a kind of feedback that I would just never get in the silo because the, everyone in the silo doesn't see that blind spot the same as me, or maybe they're just too polite to point it out. 
Absolutely. And I think there's an element of, of friendship or kind of group dynamic that isn't that you love your friend, not just because of themselves or the relationship, but because they, they validate your identity in a way Mm -hmm. and that you wrap up in your, your understanding of yourself gets reflected back to you in a way that's really clear. And it, that feels really good. You know, I always say there's no better feeling than losing your friends at a concert and then coming back to them. And they're like, Claire, like it's such a comforting familial (laughs) element that someone knows you, you know, and they they see you. Um, but the, the sort of, the sort of flip side of that is, yeah, your identity gets sort of stagnant and it's hard when you see a new group of people and they say to you you know, they call something in your temperament out that you didn't even really, you know, I like you because X or it's so you're funny when you say why you're like, Whoa, I do. I'm like that. And you have to sort of recalibrate your identity based on other people's perceptions of you. But the more that we can be doing that, we're updating our map as we go through life. And, and that makes us really anti-fragile. No, that's a beautiful and, and it is quite a quagmire as to what to do. I'm, I'm thinking this through my head, okay? And I like what you just said here about pointing out blind spots. So maybe, okay, we're at work right now. Aaron, you're going to be working with these people over here. And I'm like, but I really want to work with those. No, 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 Aaron, you're going to be working with these people. I'm like, all right, fine. Okay, I don't have a choice. I go in there. I kind of hold my nose at first, whatever. But then I, 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 I think about what you just told me, Claire. Hey, maybe these people will point out some blind spots about me. Maybe they'll see a weakness in me that is really genuine. And, and I never saw, thought about myself because I, you know, it's really hard to do that. I'll work with them for a while. I'll learn as much as I can from them if they do have something of value to teach me. And as Peterson would say, like there, there's always value to be learned from everyone. You know, assume the person you're speaking to knows something you don't. So I listen to them. I'm working with them. I think that that could be okay, and that's a good growing experience. That's that's living outside your comfort zone, which is important. I think when it kind of crosses some imaginary line, I'm, I'm hoping we can figure out where this line is, is when they start judging core tenets and core principles about who it is that you are, that's where we start getting into some highly dangerous territory. So I think it's okay for them to kind of point out maybe minor personality quirks and, and things like that. That's fine. Okay, I'm learning. You know what? I do have a way of being a little grumpy here and now. Oh, you know what? I will work on that. Thank you, sir. That's, I think, the, the line in the sand for me is like, you're telling me to believe, and, and I'll use the capital B there, believe in stuff that I don't believe in. Th- that's where, that, that's, that, that I think may be the point where you have to walk away. Yeah, it's, uh, man, I've been there. And it's interesting you use the word believe because when Peterson gets asked that question, do you believe in God? He dissects the entire freaking thing. Oh yeah, thing. he, he never, he, <laughs> he doesn't, like, he doesn't the... like that sentence, but he, you know, he, he pulls out believe and specifically says, okay, there's what you say and there's how you act. And I think, especially in the workforce, you know, we're saying all sorts of things. And I've had people bring issues to me that they're articulating as being one issue. But if you really start to look at the way that person has acted, how have they, what, you know, what words have they reacted to? What are they doing? You can often learn a lot more. And so active listening is just about, just as much about listening to someone's words as it is about, about sort of the actions themselves. Um, and, and then how to, how to react to that. I think that Hopefully, 
by the time, you know, by you, by the time you've gotten to that conversation, that's going to frustrate you, you probably had a lot of chances to cut that off early on. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that engaging in, in all work in a kind of constant feedback process, where if anything, if, if any time someone does something good that you like, it's like Pavlov, like you are, you're really immediately trying to identify it or, or pull it out. Um, and what I try to do with the, with people on my team is not just say, oh, you did great. Oh, that was great. You're so great. But showing them the cause and, and effect of that. So when you did X, it really helped the team do Y or, you know, really. And, and I think that that makes it seem a little bit more genuine. Mm-hmm. And then similarly, calling those negative things out immediately. Um, and not, it doesn't need to be every time, but what you're doing there is you're showing that there's a line that you don't cross uh, or you don't want to get crossed so that you don't have to build that resentment so that you have that weird, awkward conversation down the line. Um, and similarly, I, I'll do the same thing with that negative feedback of when, when you did this, it had an impact on, on team dynamics like this, or it, it, you know, it put us behind by this amount of days so that they know it's not uh, personal, but it's kind of, it's, it's a line in the sand. Um, and, and, and in this way, you start to show people your values. You draw that line early on. It's a simple conversation. You try to have it in an unemotional way. Um, because for me, I, I often bottle those things up and then I, you know, kind of sound sort of cuckoo down the road. I like the, the most valuable thing I, I, you said, I like the word that you said immediately, you immediately mm-hmm. say something And this. Thank you, Claire, because I think that was one of my gravest mistakes is that someone would cross the line. I keep it kind of bottled up and then it would manifest as a nasty volcano eventually down the line. But I like this. I, I like, I love what you just said that just say it immediately. So it's not as big of a volcano, like, Hey, thanks for that pointer about this and that. But then as soon as they say something that fundamentally crosses your belief system, be like, Hey, I actually don't really believe in that. Or, Hey, I kind of see the world a bit differently. And in that moment, don't, don't wait, you know, three months down the line and then be like, Hey, uh, I know I didn't say anything at that moment, but three months ago, I actually don't really believe, just say it in that moment. And I think the only way, and, and maybe when I was younger, I wasn't fully prepared to deal with the consequences is that like, when you speak your belief instantaneously in the moment, you will get slapped across the face. Like I, I have, it will, it will happen, but I think you have to kind of learn to, to sort of like embrace that slap and just, and be okay with it. Yeah, I'm very bad at this. And I, I, I think it, it's a bit of an avoidant personality trait. And I also think more than anything, I often just need my intuition to think about it for a little bit. Like, you know, I don't in the moment even know how I'm feeling or how to process it. And I need the kind of 10 minutes, you know, 10 minutes for my intuition to, to start to really tell me that. So it doesn't need to be right there. Um, but yeah, this, the more, you know, 24 hours, the more you're ruminating on that thing, um, that's, that's not going to be effective. My, um, one of my mentors would kind of like, I remember one time, particularly I was giving a presentation. He's not going to like stand up in the middle of the presentation and call it out <laughs> immediately. Right. Yeah. But it was like a couple hours after. And he asked, you know, can I give you some feedback on that? And I, I love that question too, because it, it, it gives you agency to be part of that kind of feedback process. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's about, you know, setting up our boundaries and, and maybe sometimes you don't know how you feel. And I do think it's very powerful, especially in work sometimes to say, I don't know how I feel about that. Or, or, you know, that, that makes me kind of uncomfortable, but I need to think about it. Mm-hmm. That is going to freak that person out so much as you are processing, but just, you know, just putting a line in the sand, you know, that, that might be a problem for me, but let me think about this and, and get back to you. Like, 
that's that's very poignant and it's true yes yes and i think i think at the very least 24 to 48 hours like do get yep. back to that person and like if you like and, and like i said sometimes we all are you know the deer in the headlights and someone says something really outrageous well we're like you know what well, like what and you you may not have the words and that's okay but definitely really follow up within 24 48 hours and then mentally actually prepare yourself for the consequence be like oh these people are going to rat me out they're going to go to the boss i'm going to look bad i might get fired like you actually have to kind of mentally go through all of the consequences of, of what might very well happen um but at the end of the day i i think I think you have to kind of know, and I, I feel like the truth always comes out. And the one, the one lesson that I'm, I'm realizing is that we have this saying that, like, um, you know, the best things in life take a while. And I, I agree, but not the truth. Like the truth, you want McDonald's. You want quick. You want that truth to just be like, am I really going to survive here? Do these people really like me? Am I going to make it here? You want that truth quickly. You want it off the value menu. You don't want to wait six months to find out the truth of it. Like, oh shoot, I'm actually not. I'm not a good fit here. I'm not really compatible working with these people. I'm not really. My values do not align to this organization's values. And I think figuring that out sooner than later is going to then allow you to then migrate to new circles that are more closely aligned with your value system. And that's that, that's that system one brain. That's the old animalistic brain. And, and I struggle with it too, because often that first intuitive response is the right one. Um, and yet we let the system to kind of analyze it and make it all confusing. And, and so both are important. And I think you want them to be in conversation with each other. You certainly want someone else's analytical brain to help diagnose your animalistic brain. Like that they, they can often see you more clearly. Mm. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think, I think absolutely. I think, you know, the, the other thing that's really important here is figuring out what that shared value is because you can always find one. And you might not have all of them, but if you can start to uncover what is one thing that we share that we can work for, that's going to get you a really long way. And, you know, when we, when you think about sort of coalition building in government, if, if you look at any political systems that aren't a two-party system that, that have, you know, five, six, 10 parties, um, I spent some time in Spain, they're a prime example of this. You cannot win the election often just by first past the post, like you, you're not going to get that majority seat. And so often the victors need to develop some sort of a coalition with the other parties, you know, as part of government. And those parties are not aligned and often they are, they have radical differences, but they do, they can find some shared value. You know, there are the, the hardcore rights and the hardcore lefts are often not going to coalesce, but, um, but you can kind of come together toward one shared, shared, shared value and impact. And so that's, that's very profound to people. And it brings together the people that follow these parties in a way that we're not as good at doing in the U.S., um, because, you know, suddenly you're, you're with a leader who isn't part of your party, but your party is associated to it and you're opened up to these different ideas. Um, and so I think getting to what that shared value is um, helps the kind of the non-shared values get a little bit more, more palpable. Yes. And I, I think like even using your European mo model of uh, political parties, I actually think that the, the, the word that's even better than coalition is alliances because mm -hmm alliances, I feel as if like, 
when you have an alliance with someone, I think the, the, the kind of connotation is like, we may not really like each other all that much, but we have to create an alliance. Like, as I think of world, you know, my mind goes into the yeah. World War II era of like sure. the Soviet Union, US, they formed an alliance. But when you form an alliance with a foreign nation, you know, in that, like, we, we hated the Soviet Union, but we formed an alliance to defeat the greater evil of Hitler. And I think that that mindset might be a healthier one, because when you form an alliance with another political party or with someone, form an alliance with someone at work, it's like, you still maintain your identity and you still remember like, yeah, I don't really care for you all that much, but we have this shared goal and therefore we now have like an access powers or whatever to like, or, or ally, I'm sorry, allied powers to kind of like defeat, d- defeat whatever evil it is that we're trying to accomplish. And, and that is shared enemy as well. I mean, I think shared enemy is often more impactful because we are, you know, survival is always at the fittest. And, and luckily to to our point about humor is people love to talk about enemies and problems and you can find, I mean, sometimes the shared enemy is just the work day. Right. And so, you know, I think finding those and aligning on those Mm. is, is good. I mean, Seinfeld has a great joke about like, everyone is just busy is like a currency. Everyone's just like busy and everything's busy and everyone's so hard and it's like busy. And, and I, I do think there's a downside to just constantly commiserating about negative things, mm-hmm. but um, they do bring people together and in, and in a fun way. And there is, I think, an element of being a, an employee and kind of like pushing back towards the higher ups that, that does sort of bring people together. Yes. 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 Like some, some, some level of misery brings company. And I think, I think, I think some to a small dosage, it's okay. The last thing I kind of want to mention here, and this is something that I realize is essential for protecting one's self-esteem and protecting one's core identity is when you have to form an alliance I think it's important to have people on the outside who truly do have your shared sense of value. I think that that can actually get you through the day a a lot easier if you know that there, because what I think happens is this, Claire, let's just say you go to work and you don't really have that much going on in the outside world, right? Let's just say that you're kind of pushed between a hard, you know, a rock and a hard place where it's like, okay, I abandoned the people at work and now I'm in exile. Now I have nothing. And for some, they're able to do that and be like, great. I, you know, I'm the, I'm the quote unquote exile. Like I, I don't, I don't subscribe to the value system of this group and I'm going it alone. And that's fantastic. You know, like be, that's a hero's journey in the making right there. However, for some others, it might be easier to have a community outside of work that you're like, all right, you know, I, once, once, the workday ends, I can get away from these clowns and sort of wash myself amongst my bro- my brothers and sisters who think similar to the ways that I do. And that, that can actually give you your peace of mind. That's your North Star. That's your like ray of hope at the end of the day of like, I'm not betraying who I am. I'm forming this alliance during the day. And then I have this other community that supports me in the backdrop. Yeah. And, and we know psychologically that it is very quick that people I start to identify with. It's very easy for someone to break down their value system in a in a an authoritative 
environment. I mean, you see that with Stockholm syndrome, you know, someone who is a, a complete abuser to you can suddenly become your savior very quickly when you're isolated around them. Um, whatever those, those lab coat experiments of like someone coming in with a lab coat and telling you to shock someone. And just because they're authoritative, you're, you're happy to do it. Yeah. And so I, I absolutely, I think having an outlet that really knows you and sees you um, is very valuable. And, and sometimes that's all, it should also be yourself right? So you should have a process, whether that's a th therapy or journaling or writing or just something to, to process those emotions yourself. Because in the end of the day, you know yourself better than anyone else. But I, I completely agree that having that tribe, having them be people, you know, that are part of your family, potentially that have known you for a long time, as well as people that want the best for you, that aren't going to bring in their own BS um, is really huge. I mean, I'm a big RuPaul fan and he's huge on tribe and how big his tribe has been to his success. Mm. And we create our own tribe. Um, and I think that, you know, we can constantly also be editing that tribe, um, but we should be, be valuing it. We should, you know, write down the dates that are important to those people and really show up for them because someday you're going to need them and you're really going to want them to give your, your, their, your honest opinion to you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And we've touched upon this on previous podcasts where uh, sometimes your, you know, your tribe needs to be reschwizzled. Like you need to like, right. like that tribe, like this tribe is no longer supporting me and I need a new outside tribe. And I, I think this also connects to, I was watching one a small little um, YouTube clip with Peterson and he said, if you are in a situation that is against your core belief system, you need to always have like a tunnel or a way out. And, and like, you always have to, like, if you're stuck at that job that you hate, you know, and it's like, okay, if I quit this job tomorrow, I'm going to literally starve to death and not make rent. Well, you actively, every waking moment of your free time, you need to be finding where, how can I get to the next like island of people that have, more shared, like they may not be perfect, but they're at least a closer approximation to where it is that I belong in this world. And even just that act of like going on Monster or Indeed or networking with other people and being like, oh, you work there? It wouldn't happen to be an opening, you know? And like, maybe it fails. Maybe maybe you don't find another job right away and that really sucks. You kind of have to hang tight. But one guy, this was beautiful. Um, I used to talk to him in the gym when I would work out at sports club. He said every day, every time that I have like a, my boss really chews me out or I have a, a rough day at work with my coworkers, I instantly send out 10 resumes that day. I don't even wait. Like I, I go and I, I go home and I send out 10 resumes. Does anything come of it? 90% no, but it makes me feel good that I'm building a tunnel for myself and a possible escape route. I think of um, Shawshank Redemption. The only reason Andy Dufresne was able to deal with being in that prison is because every night he just like kept on chipping away at that tunnel. Just like, okay, warden says this, blah, blah, blah. All this crazy stuff is happening. Great. I'm just going to focus all of this negative energy and start building myself a tunnel out of this prison. Absolutely. It's, it's really profound. And I think it's harder for people that are higher in agreeableness because we, it, we really identify quickly with our groups and um, it's, you know, that becomes so paramount, but I really try actively now to like put my oxygen mask on first, right? That, that yes, my job is important. Yes. My friends are important, but at the end of the day, it's just me. And if I weaken myself here 
and I'm not constantly building that tunnel, it feels it's it, the resentment. It just is just right there. Um, and, and th those tunnels can be all sorts of things. Maybe it's a side project. Maybe it's a passion. Maybe it's your dog, like what, whatever it is, um, having, you know, an outlet that, that pulls you out of just kind of the, the misery of life and, 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 um, just gives you those moments of joy and, and you can pull out and Hey, this 10 minutes is perfect. Even though it was a tough day. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, th I think to kind of leave off here, you may have to form alliances to survive, but don't let that alliance impede your survival. <laughs> Claire, Claire, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you as always, Aaron. This concludes the 83rd episode of the Truth Island podcast. I'm Aaron Azrod. <laughs>